Hi, and welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. This podcast is about the place where design and development overlap. We talk with experts to get their point of view about trends in design, code, and how it relates to the world around us. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Knapsack. Check us out at knapsack.cloud. If you want to get in touch with the show, ask some questions, or generally tell us what you think, go ahead and tweet us at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Straw with the Design Systems Podcast. I'm here today with Robin Cannon, back with Robin Cannon. Robin, thanks for coming on the show again. I think we're due a little life update. So tell us what you've been up to. Yeah, what is it? It's about three years since we last spoke on the on the podcast. But yeah, so I'm now six months into a new role as head of design systems at JP Morgan. After the best part of a decade, I guess, at IBM. Obviously, most of that was all around the the inception and growth and leadership of Carbon and then about a year and a half in IBM consulting, really building a design systems offering on the consulting side so that we're working with clients and partners on how to build, refine, expand their design systems. And then, yeah, that's kind of in large part what I'm doing at JP Morgan is taking the design system and all my lessons over the last decade or so to really expanding our approach with the Salt Design System, which is open source. You have seen some early releases of that at saltdesignsystem.com. And that's an exciting direction we're going. I'm really enjoying it so far. Six months in, I'm as enthusiastic, if not more enthusiastic than when I started, which feels like a pretty good sign to me. That's awesome. And I think it's an interesting choice for financial institution. You don't see a lot of open source software coming out of you know big banking institutions. And I'm curious about the choice to make it open source. Yeah, I mean, I think that... It's an interesting one because it's easy to get overly focused on the aspect of it being open source. It's open source primarily because there's no exceptionally good reason for it not to be open source. So it's still primarily the design system for JP Morgan and for internal products and applications at the corporate investment bank. But it's also something that partners of JP Morgan may be able to use if they're for example, using some underlying back-end payment processing, something like that, they have a relationship with us there, and they also want to build a consumer-facing portal, then here's an option that makes it easier for them to do that. It also demonstrates you know, that JP Morgan and digital experience design is a big part of, of JP Morgan's initiative and drive to improve user experience. And this is a demonstration of we are trying to lead in that field. We are trying to be subject matter experts in the design and front-end development space with a focus on the financial industry. And that's quite exciting for me to be able to look at things from a different perspective, particularly having spent so long in the tech-specific industry, to be doing a design system and talking about design system publicly in a different industry space. I love it personally. I think that as has been touted all around the industry for years now, adoption is the biggest indicator of success of a design system. And any barriers like, you know, needing to be provisioned an account or, you know, have your right SSO ID or, or whatever to actually consume the design system is a barrier. Now, it's oftentimes a low barrier, but it is a barrier nonetheless. And being able to have something that's truly open, I think more organizations would benefit from doing that, even if they only intend to ever really use the design system for themselves. The mere idea that anybody can use it, consume it, look at it, touch it, and maybe even contribute to it if they want. For sure, yeah. And and I think that Phil Gilbert, who was the general manager of IBM Design, I remember having a conversation, because he used to be my boss when I was director of Carbon, 
the adoption is not the metric that you want to pursue. Enthusiastic adoption is the metric because yeah. you can force adoption through mandates and so on. But what you actually want is to create an environment and an ecosystem where people are excited to use the design system that they are trusting and confident that's going to help them do their work and that it's accountable. And I think the other big part of being open source is not just the work and being able to see it and touch it. It's working out in the open as well and saying, here is what we're doing now. Here is what we're planning to do next so that people can understand what's coming as well as what's currently here and make decisions based on that. Exactly. Yeah, the reduction to barriers of people becoming enthusiasts, champions, excited about it. I mean, that's how I view that value is by making it something that you don't hoard, right? Like the, the information that exists inside of the design system is valuable to a lot of different people. You can go back and forth all day long about whether it's like a strategic asset of the company that should be public or not. But like the reality of it is, is that by having it public and out there, you can communicate in a very different way. And I think that that's really special, especially for a big institution that, like I said, I think that traditionally doesn't necessarily um, swing that way. Yeah. And I, and I think that fundamentally, it also makes you accountable to a broader scope of audience. I don't know. I've been in a Mad Men rewatch recently. <laughs> and there's, there's, a, there's a line, Don Draper's talking to some of his writers, and he, he says, stop writing for other writers. And I think that that's also something that designers can fall into that trap of not designing for the end user, designing for other designers to look at that and say, that's really cool. The more we open the aperture of visibility of our work at earlier stages, the more we get a broader view and broader feedback from lots of different stakeholders or interested parties, and the end users get to see things much earlier as well. And as a result, we're forced to design and develop for the people who are going to be using this thing. And I think that that really keeps us honest. No, I mean, let the light in, man. I'm, I'm in. I think the other part of this, too, is you guys have a lot of complexity to a system like this, right? You're in a situation where you and your team, you're supporting a pretty broad scope of products. Like, there's a lot that JP Morgan does. Probably more than I can even envision. Well, I'm, I'm six months in, and there's so much that, that I still have to learn. It's one of the things that is keeping me the enthusiastic and really fascinated in moving into such a complex industry space and understanding or starting to understand the complexity and the variety of different use cases, different platforms, different situations that will gain benefit from using a design system to build those experiences. So how do you do that with one design system or is it not one design system? I mean, I think that you can do it with one design system. Certainly, like at most companies, there are more than one design system. There's one, more than one design system at, at JP Morgan Chase for different areas. But I'd like our design system, I'd like the Salt design system to expand its footprint to be able to cater for a broader scope of use cases. We already address that in some ways by looking at different densities of experiences. So whether that be a lower density, more white space consumer or marketing or brand focused experience all the way up to very high density. And I think that's one. I used to joke at IBM that there were applications that their primary interface or their pri the, the primary user experience was just a data table. And I thought that that was true at IBM, but now I'm in a financial institution 
there are lots of situations where that's really true. And I think it is a big challenge because there's such a broad scope of use. But I think addressing things around what's an expressive use or an expressive variation, what's a very, very data-heavy productive use, and thinking of those user journeys and thinking of those patterns, where do they share characteristics? And then where are their deviations? To what extent do you want to pursue those variants of, of productive data-heavy use cases and expressive consumer-facing use cases? And how much of that do you want to capture within single components or within patterns? And how much of it do you accept that there is going to be this, this broader ecosystem where you do empower different lines of business or different channels to extend upon the core DNA of the design system for their own specific needs. That is interesting. What I'm starting to talk about when I I hear things like that is the idea of where do I strategically insert fragmentation into my design system? You know, systems are all about like fighting back against the tidal wave of fragmentation that exists inside of products. And I think that we've all sort of decided that like maybe there are some products that are worth their own you know, fragmentation, their own system within a system, but there are other products that aren't. And so at what point do you make those decisions that basically say this is unique enough or different enough than my core foundational system or another product system or another brand system to say this is a moment where fragmentation is actually beneficial to the system as a whole? I'd almost approach it the other direction and say, how much of the DNA can we encourage you to share and evolve from? And then knowing and acknowledging that that kind of work is going to happen anyway, what can we do to facilitate visibility of all that work and an indexing of all that work so that we can then take action around it? Because it's almost like we or no single entity, no single team is going to be well-placed to say that's unique, that's not unique. Rather, I'd prefer to encourage an ecosystem where we've defined, here are universal principles, here are robust guidelines and and opinions on how to build and design and develop good experiences, good applications. Here are maybe some early universal flows and components. But then also here is a structure so that if you want to pursue an extension to a component or a new component, or you have a pattern, build that. We trust you to have followed all the universal characteristics and guidance. Build it, get it into your product, and just let us know it exists. We can surface it. We can provide you with some resources around here is a documentation template for some consistent templating. Here is maybe even like a static site template for how to throw up your satellite from the core salt design system, and we'll surface it. And once we index it, we'll be like, oh, there's 15 different versions of this component, or there's 12 different versions of this pattern. That was already happening. Now we can take some action around it. And if three of those versions of that pattern are intentional and the other nine are accidental, well, then let's work to eliminate the accidental ones and let's coalesce with all the relevant stakeholders across different lines of business and channels around the ones that are intentional. And that's how we accept that there is always going to be a degree of fragmentation. 
but let's make sure it's intentional fragmentation rather than accidental. I think that's the biggest thing is what's intentional and what just happens because there is no common frame of reference or the common DNA. <laughs> I mean, everybody always talks about gardening and these things, right? But it, <laughs> it, it sounds like that, right? Like, you know, you have your your tomato plant that has roots and shoots and stems and leaves and buds and flowers and fruit. How you cultivate that, oftentimes it's totally fine for the plant to, you know, grow another branch. But every once in a while, you want to prune it. And because you prune it, it makes for a healthier, more productive plant. And I think that's interesting where your thought process behind this is rather organic, but with that relatively steady hand towards pruning that I think is interesting. I think that there's always a point if you don't do that, that the design system becomes a bottleneck. And if you try and create too much control and you try and push back too hard against the fragmentation, then you become the blocker for teams. Like we can't ship our product because you haven't either done or approved this pattern that we suggested or this component. And therefore we can't progress. And all that means is that you'll hit a point where they'll just start going around the design system and you don't have the visibility. It's a lean into providing some structure and some support to things that need to happen anyway. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a a snowball there, right? Like it's finding the path of least resistance, but also growing as it rolls downhill. You always want the design system to feel like that path of least resistance. And by feeling like, like that path of least resistance, you grow those enthusiastic adopters and also the value of the system along the way through contribution. Is that really the tactic you take in sort of this model where you have contributors to a core system and then you also have contributors to some sort of subsystem that exists at a brand or product level? Like what is that architecture of systems look like for you? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two different ways I look at it. But the first one is you have, you have fundamentally that hub and spoke model. So right at the center, you have the hub, which is the design system. And then you have kind of like the high level spokes, the line of business, business unit areas. What would those be for you? Yeah, like commercial banking or something like that? Not like those kind of things. So we might have, for example, payments or markets or something like that as a large line of business. Now, there's lots and lots of products and platforms within those line of businesses, but they're more likely to share some patterns or some specific component functionality. And therefore, they're going to be the ones that are driving that and need to share it at least internally among the teams within that channel. It doesn't necessarily make sense for us to either try and manage it at the design system level because we don't have that domain expertise but also we can't be approving things and they're not necessarily universal. So let's create the opportunity for those spokes to develop and be a catalyst for those lines of business to share among their product teams and have somewhere easy for their product teams to push stuff up. Right. So the idea being that like markets data table, (laughs) to go back to your prior example, might not look anything like or behave anything like payments data table because those are very different lines of business. Yeah, well, so there's two different things. It might not because neither line of business ever really spoke to each other in the past, and that's something we need to address. Or it might not because they have very intentional and specific domain differences. Now, we can't scale at a central design system level to be able to capture and cater and manage all that anyway, but we can provide the broader ecosystem and structure necessary. And to move to the other like kind of visual references, I think of it more like a funnel 
a funnel of specificity. At the highest level, even above the design system, you'll have like the general brand guidelines extending into a design language. And then it becomes more specific at the design system level where you're like, here are components, here is patterns, here are implementation, execution specifics that are cross-horizontal. And then at the line of business level, you might have more specifics like here are components and patterns that are specific to our domain. Here might be in where we have information on how to hook into the APIs and the data in our area. How do we connect the components? We don't want to have that at the core design system level. And that needs to be more abstract. And also that is probably the level of distinction where some of these things are internal. The core design system is open source. Now we're getting to more business specific and domain specific where these things do need to be internal. Maybe there's an internal environment or ecosystem that shares the same DNA, shares a lot of the same look and feel, is, is used and consumed in the same way. And if you're a JP Morgan employee, you would hopefully see potentially a richer catalog of components and patterns than you would if you're just viewing the Salt Design System website and you're not part of the company. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, there's also an access thing there that does matter at some level, right? Especially if you're talking about, like, how do I wire my component tree up to business logic or to content systems that are proprietary or something like that, right? And the idea being that at some level, it stops being about just UI and starts being about like, here's a holistic experience. Yeah, exactly. But we can also reverse it a little bit as well. And our role can also be to surface across the business some of these things that are done at the line of business level or at the product team level. Because I also think that nobody is necessarily the best judge of whether something is reusable. So if you're a product team in a particular space, building something, and and from your perspective, it might be very, very specific in its use case. Um, And you're like, we don't need to, you know, there's no reason why this would be at the design system level, so we'll just keep it here. Whereas if we say the default is, at least internally, we make it visible, we don't know whether another team in another line of business might suddenly realize, oh, actually... That gets us 70% of the way to what we thought we, what we would need to do anyway. So it saved us a bunch of time. And so we can be the catalyst for that sharing model. It's almost like the core foundations part of it. Like there's obviously direct value there, right? You, you're making components and things like that. But a lot of what you're doing is you're providing standards and guidance. And then you're creating a platform for discovery of this for other parts of the business that may not be aware of what already exists. And I think that's an interesting way to define the role of a foundational system inside of a big organization and enterprise is, you know, there's always, of course, the support side of it, there's the building side of it. But long term, what it's really about is it's about providing the guidelines for how you contribute, and for what is, you know, the right way. And you even mentioned brand, which I think, by the way, is really special. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then discovery of what other people have built. I think that's a cool way of thinking about the role of those bigger, more central foundational pieces of the systems of systems model. Yeah, I think so. Because I think that however big the design system team gets, the companies and the organizations are so large that you can never scale to provide everything that everybody needs. And if you're just saying everything has to come through the design system, What happens if somebody submits something to the design system 
that's really, really high quality, but maybe is very specialized? Does the design system team get stuck having to like both approve that and then maintain it because it's in the design system without the domain knowledge and without really the capacity to do so? Whereas if we're providing the building blocks necessary for domain specialists to solve the problems in their domain, and then we're sharing that good work, then suddenly the design system's footprint expands every time anybody anywhere in the company builds something good. Yeah. No, and that's democratization, right? That's that's the idea of it, right? Is anybody can make a contribution and leave it better than they found it. And I love that philosophically. People do get nervous about the democratization because they're like, well, how do you manage quality? And a little bit of my response is, well, you don't. <laughs> you kind of like let let the market decide. But if you're creating this index or this catalog, you maybe make completion a little bit analogous to quality. You say, provide us these 10 pieces of metadata, yes, no questions. It's like, does this have code? Does this have Figma assets? Has it passed accessibility testing? So that people can consume it in a fairly informed way. But beyond that, you can be like, okay, if something clearly is getting lots and lots of interest from lots and lots of teams across the company, then from a design system team perspective, we can go and look at that and refine it. But you broadly let like the market decide and refine these pieces of work rather than trying to police all of the quality in the first place, which is when you become that bottleneck and you just can't do it. So this gives me to back to the, the brand thing, right? So there's this acknowledgement of this higher level concept of brand standards and everything like that that exist that are then represented in the design system. And so kind of a two-parter, like how much do you consider the design system to be a steward of the digital brand? And then back to your, your quality concept, do you ever end up in a situation where the stuff that is contributed to the design system is at odds with the expression of the brand? Or is that a part of the standards? I mean, like, so broadly, we want to be a vehicle for the digital expression of a brand that goes well beyond digital, you know, especially at a company like JP Morgan with such a history and such a multi-platform, multi-channel approach to engaging with its customers, many of which aren't digital. So the brand expression and the brand realization is far more universal, but from the digital experience design group within JP Morgan. And then from the design system perspective, we're like, okay, how does that brand get effectively expressed and what kind of methods and tooling and process can we do to make it easier for teams to use that brand in effective ways? And obviously a lot of that does inform our universal principles and characteristics and guidance. Now, that being said, there are, different products, different applications, some of which may pursue different approaches to how they present themselves. To some extent, it's outside of the design system team scope to police that, to say yes or no. We can highlight and say, hey, you're not approaching this in the way that we would recommend. If it's a particularly wild variant, so, you know, and this, this does, then you can raise that with the relevant stakeholders and be like, hey, you know, this is something that maybe needs to be looked at in a different way. And that goes for any company. That's not just a JP Morgan thing. I would love to see a JPM brand expressed as like 1970s Art Deco. Right. 
I always yeah. talk about like, you know, theoretically you can create something in the design system that is neon pink if you want to do some overrides and use some tokens and use some theming, but then there's, there's, a, there's a whole governance <laughs> issue around that. And, right, and that, right. I think that's my biggest thing. I think like the design system should allow and enable technically far more than governance around design and brand expression should allow. So you're kind of like, don't restrict things from a technical perspective, address that through a broader governance approach to design. No, and I mean, you use the G word there, which is scary for a lot of organizations when it comes to the idea of design systems, because lots of, of folks look at these sorts of systems as a method of control and a very fine grain technical control of implementation. And I think that you shouldn't be constrained by the tech inside of your platform. You should be thinking about like, what is the the human service model associated with a design system? And when you think about governance, that is innately a process that is about you know the people, not about the technology enforcing limitations for you. Yeah, and, and, and you have to do that because if you try and enforce things technically, well, then you just make life difficult for yourself when the technology changes. You know, a design system should not be beholden to a particular framework or a particular technology approach. Because it always changes. Yeah, exactly. So the salt design system is built on React. In 10, 15 years, React is not going to be what people use to build user experiences. Right, we're all just going to be prompt engineers by then, right? Right. (laughs) But whatever, whatever the solution is, a design system needs to be agile and flexible enough to be able to approach a new technical implementation of the same guidelines and the same processes. The vehicle, the underlying functionality of that vehicle needs to be able to evolve and change. And if you've added all your restrictions to behavior into a technological approach, then you just make it more difficult to make those changes. Yeah, this is actually my biggest reason why I always say that custom tech and design systems is really hard is because you can create a really, really brilliant, elegant design system that works for a very specific point in time. And you can get budget for that, and you can build that. But then what happens when things shift? And often things shift during the build. And then trying to figure out, like, oh, no, how do I go back to that well and either get refunded to deal with that shift or move or shoehorn in my technology that is going to make that change to whatever's new possible. And like you said, you know, in 10, 15 years, it's not going to be React, just like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, everything was PHP. And I think likewise, you know, you're already watching lots of different JavaScript frameworks and stuff be, funny enough, usurped again by server-side languages. Um, And so, you know, the pendulum swings in a a funny way in technology there. But the idea of, of what's next is always something that should be kind of at the forefront of your mind when designing systems like this, because this system needs to have resilience that's going to last for far longer than any one technology will inside of your enterprise. You know, I've been, I've been talking to my team recently about like when I think about the vision of the salt design system and we're still very early in like this evolution from our internal design system and we're trying to get to that critical mass of component tree so that we've got like that parity with the existing design system a lot of products and applications use so that that migration journey becomes a more realistic endeavor and we can turn around to teams in JP Morgan and say, hey, if you're building something new, Salt is ready and you can trust it. The next step is to really expand everything around that. 
it's the guidelines, the why should you use a design system, here are tutorials, here's how you get involved, here's how you contribute, here are the people involved. I talk about it as like once you've got that component tree, you want to build everything else to the extent that if you went back and took away the coded components, it would still have value in terms of guidelines and process and everything else. There is a lot of value in the kitchen sink of design systems <laughs> as well, right? Like everything everywhere all at once. Um, yeah. <laughs> but at, this, at the same time, like any one of those parts should be able to shine individually. It's one of the big things that yeah, I railed against for a really long time in the industry was, was having these systems that are purpose-built for a discipline. And I think that that's the thing that I don't want to confuse by my last statement is I think that a design system is ineffectual if it just works for engineers or if it just works for product people or if it just works for designers. There still needs to be that cross-functional value, but those individual pieces of that can be rather small. Like docs have valued everybody. A system that lets you organize your assets has valued everybody. What I think is a lot harder is like when you say like, oh, I have this thing that integrates really well into VS Code. That doesn't have a lot of value to design. And that's not to say it's not a valuable tool, but it's not like a, a tool that is going to reinforce a systems concept throughout an organization. No, I mean, it can facilitate adoption. And I think the tooling aspect is really beneficial for addressing some of those pain points and those obstacles and frictions for adoption, whether those are designers and developers, just having good tooling. I always think of like the design system is the place you go first. And then if you have a discipline specific need, then you can branch off and go to the discipline specific areas of that design system. But the design system is where you have the shared language and the design system is where you have the conceptual integrity, the reference, like here is the concept of how we are building experiences that's relevant and useful to designers, developers, or product owners and product managers. And then you can go and take the assets and use the code or get the design files or whatever you need for the next steps to actually implement. But the design system is more than just an implementation tool. It is that kind of broader guidance and the integrity of the vision. Yeah, I love the idea of the design system representing integrity. That's really cool. Yeah, we, we use a lot of similar words, right? Like trust and all those sorts of things, right? But that idea that like, this is where the reason for being lives, I think that's really cool. But I mean, since we're all going to be replaced by AI soon, I wanted to jam on that. In particular, since you know, the company you work for has very famously rejected other LLMs in favor of building their own. And you know, there's a lot of things going on in this space. And it's changing things really, really rapidly. And I think that design systems are kind of like no exception to this. And given your experience at an organization that's investing very heavily in AI and in a place where I think AI is going to change a lot of the world, I would love to hear about what you think this is going to mean for design systems. It's interesting. I actually, I did a, an experiment recently where I had a conversation with ChatGPT with design systems and basically challenging it to do some various things and got very excited very quickly and then very, very quickly disappointed subsequently <laughs> within the same <laughs> conversation. Um, because I think that it was really interesting because I was like, you know, tell me, you know, what are some of the aspects of a design system? How would you build a particular type of, you know, would you build a form using a, de des a design system? How would you check accessibility? Even, you know, how would you run tests for that accessibility with 
a language like Jest or a framework like Jest. And it spat out some fairly coherent answers. Then I got a little bit more specific. And I know Carbon from having worked on Carbon so long. And obviously, there's a certain degree of fairly limited subset right now of, of salt design system components that are publicly available as well. So I asked, you know, how would you build a credit card submission form using Carbon? And it spat out a bunch of code for a form that used the right class names and stuff and was like coherent. And then I asked it, okay, well, how would you do that with salt? Because there's still, you know, a a subset of components. It just made it up. Like literally just (laughs) made it up. (laughs) And so I started delving into things on that basis. And and you've probably seen the, you know, the reference to AI hallucinations. And I came to the conclusion that it's more like ChatGPT will not tell you that it does not know something. Like AI will not and does not want to admit that it doesn't know something. So the next step, I was like, okay, I read the Guardian newspaper online quite a lot. And I was like, I asked it, I said, if you were using the carbon design system, what components would you use to rebuild the Guardian homepage? And it listed these components. So I was like, well, you've listed eight components, only one of which actually exists. And I said, but that component doesn't exist. And it, ChatGPT's response was, oh, I'm sorry, I meant this component. It's like, well, that component doesn't exist either. And it's like, oh, no, I'm sorry, I meant this component. Then you're like, oh, now when you talk about like AI being a child that needs to be trained, that's you're like, it's just like, it won't say I don't know or I'm wrong. It'll be like, oh, no, I must have meant this. And it's continually making stuff up, even though it should be able to like publicly reference this information, whether it be carbon, whether it be salt. I even asked it to list out here, list the carbon components which you should be able to do fairly easily. And it got it about 80% right. And I thought maybe it's just doing a generic list. And I said, list the Polaris components. And again, it listed a different list of components that was still only about 80% right. What I find really interesting and potentially worrying about this is I was asking about stuff I knew. Like I can look at carbon or salt or Polaris and I can see if it's wrong. If I don't have that frame of reference, it looks very, very convincing. And that's where I think we start potentially getting into trouble because you mentioned it earlier, and and I talk about it a lot as well, about trust. How can you trust this stuff right now? If you know that it's going to make stuff up or hallucinate or whatever term you want to use, but that it looks convincing how do we engender trust? Because there are options. You know, I think that the concept of being able to code in plain English fundamentally and tell an AI, I would like to build an interface that has a navigation menu that has, you know, six header items that are this and a profile avatar and a login button and have it spit that out using the design system. That's really exciting. But you have to trust that this stuff is right and good. Or, or that it exists. I mean, or that not, it exists. Not the, at least. not the highest bar in the world. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think that like the reality is, is that most of these AI models, they speak with a level of confidence that we're maybe not used to as humans, where like, you know, our intrinsic nature is usually to like trust what somebody says, but the AI isn't somebody. They're, you know, frankly bullshitting you a lot of the time. But they speak with such confidence, like they must be right, or it must be right. 
Well, it's fascinating because because I think that one of the most important things that I learned in my certainly career wise, but in life in general, and I think that goes for a lot of people, is the importance and value of being able to say I don't know, and to say that with confidence and not try and you know pussyfoot around that, but actually to say I don't know, and then to take action around that, and until somebody says I don't know, then you don't know that there's a gap, you know? So until AI says confidently or lets us know, I don't know something, how can we effectively train it? Yeah, that's a good question. It's got much more deeply philosophical than I was, I was planning, <laughs> but I, I love the experiment that you did because I think that being able to play around with what's publicly out there and, you know, I guess like it's also point in time bound, right? So like, I'm sure that Carbon and Polaris and all those systems have evolved since the time that the model was snapshotted because it is like a brain in a jar. But in that situation, like really testing it with the knowledge that you knew about design systems and how that knowledge constructs user experience, I think that's cool. It's a really interesting experiment. I've I've talked to very few people that have actually like gone through the process of saying, all right, here's a design system that's public that I do know a lot about. Now here's a website that I know a lot about and I visit, you know, every day. How do I make one with the other? That's a cool concept. We talk a lot, and there is a lot of talk about AI and what AI can do. I think that we need to interact with AI a lot more, each of us, to understand what it can do. And I think also there's lots of examples of like, here's conversations, or here's what the AI spat out in terms of like, you see all these examples of all these magazines that previously were accepting short story submissions, like fiction, and the paid ones. And they now said, well, we can't, we've had to stop accepting submissions because there's just a flood of AI stuff. And it's good enough that it's time consuming to filter out, but not good enough to publish. And then you start getting into like the effort there. So we, we talk a lot about the output, but we actually don't interact that much with AIs to gain a a first person perspective of what that output is like in different situations. And I think the other thing that we don't talk very much about, which is actually the more important thing is how do you educate and teach AI for the things that you need? Because what JP Morgan is going to need or use AI for is very different than what another company in a different space is going to use AI for. Sure, there might be, you know, for something like the design system space, I think there are interesting coding with through plain English, potentially also telling a design system about the needs you have from a component and seeing what it spits out in terms of a component to add to that system. You know, you can come at it from two different directions and those will be cross industry, but there's lots of industry specific needs. I remember reading an article when I was working at IBM about IBM Watson because Watson was very, very high profile early. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, like, wasn't that the one that, or was that Deep Blue that beat the chess player? Deep Blue beat chess player, Watson beat Jeopardy. Or right, Watson that was, was the it, Jeopardy that was it. But I remember reading an article about Watson from the health perspective. There were some companies who were like, surprised when they bought this AI, uh, this, this cognitive computing, that it didn't just do everything they needed right out of the box. They didn't understand the complexity of training necessary. And I think that how you educate AIs, and you know, you have kids, I have kids, we're raising 
intelligence. We're raising intelligences. The, the complexities that go into that, I think that we need to think a lot more about how you educate and teach something that whatever we're going to state it, whether it's cognitive, whether it's artificial, whatever, we're expecting to be a learning thing. Well, then we better get much, much better at teaching. No, that's great. <laughs> it reminds me of a lot of the very simple but very profound conversations I have with my five-year-old about like, dad, what is a sandwich? And having like a very in-depth conversation about what is a sandwich and what isn't a sandwich. And like, I've had similar like silly conversations as an adult, but my son is actually really trying to learn, like, how do I define a sandwich? It's truly earnest, truly earnest from his point. Yeah. I mean, like, it's always a joke about like, you know, is a taco a sandwich, is a hot dog a sandwich, et cetera. But like his whole thing was he was eating a meatball sub and he's like, this is like spaghetti, but it's a sandwich. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's a spaghetti sandwich. He's like, well, that doesn't make any sense because there's spaghetti and there's sandwiches and those are different things on and on and on and on. And you can kind of get where that conversation went. But, you know, we have a, a similar sort of like funny, instinctual, cultural part of things that, you know, AI has learned from that is us talking about sandwiches or whatever, right? And when an AI gets it wrong, it's because there were you know, millions of data points that made that wrong assumption. And so how do you definitively tell it it's wrong? Like, who are you at your one data point to, to tell the AI that they're wrong, right? I think that that's like one of the difficult problems of this is that when you're constructing these models, especially LLMs, and they have all this data, like your opinion or your representation of fact is against what amounts to a tidal wave of information that pushes it in the other direction. Yeah, I was talking to, to somebody about AI the other day that was was involved in the OpenAI project. And you know, their thing was is that we're running out of data, that there's not much more publicly available knowledge about humans that is out there for LLMs to consume. And so even a very, very large data set, like all the data that was proprietary for JP Morgan behind the firewall or whatever, it would be, you know, less than 1% of a change to the LLM's content. And I don't know. I, like, I think that this is, this is a really interesting problem, right? Because training becomes hard in a case where you're a tiny little drop in a, a very big pond of data. And then the second side of it is, is like the constraint models become interesting because if the AI will just flat out lie to you confidently, how do you know it's respecting to the constraints? So and it's an interesting paradox. Yeah. And if the alternative is like, okay, well, we're going to restrict the data sets, so you have AI for specific use cases, but then you're you're hampering their potential, for want of a better word, by restricting how much information they can know in order to make decisions. And even, you know, a company as knowledgeable and comprehensive in its understanding of the financial industry and the markets as JP Morgan, if it fed an AI only its own data, then you have an AI that only tells JP Morgan what JP Morgan wants to know. Right. Now, I mean, I wonder what Don Draper would say about that, right? Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, thanks, Robin. This has been really fun and enlightening. Always a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks so much for sharing. We'll put a link to the Salt Design System in the, the show notes so folks can check it out. And yeah, let's talk again soon. Let's, let's not wait a couple of years this time. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we want to see a lot of things happening with Salt, and you will 
be able to see a lot of things happening with salt because it's public over the rest of this year i'm really excited about the direction we're going i'm really excited about digital experience design within jp morgan and the team that i'm managing and the broader environment so i think there's going to be a lot to talk about sounds great well hey thanks everybody that's the show really appreciate you all have a great day that's all for today this has been another episode of the design systems podcast thanks for listening if you have any questions or a topic you'd like to know more about, find us on Twitter at the DS Pod. We'd love to hear from you with show ideas, recommendations, questions, or comments. As always, this pod is brought to you by Knapsack. You can check us out at knapsack.cloud. Have a great day.